Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every week at 12 noon Saturdays to bring you the latest information on public education because we fight for public education. And also uh, we're in the middle of an election, so we're very interested in what's happening uh, to funding matters. And um, we also bring you news about separation of church and state because we believe that religious people shouldn't have nothing to do with either education or the state. But um, we've got a press release this afternoon, um, 933, and it's mainly information that has come from Canberra from Save Our Schools. Trevor Cobald um, is a financial analyst. Uh, he used to work for the Productivity Commission and he's a whiz with figures. And aren't we lucky that he is because he's telling us just how overfunded our private schools in Australia are. They're overfunded with our money. And he's giving us all of the information on this, particularly uh, on the overfunding of very wealthy schools in New South Wales and Queensland. And we'll bring you that information a bit later. And um, we've also got the AEU is fighting back, although you wouldn't think that education was an issue this election, would you, at the moment? And um, we've also got um, a very interesting article that, uh, again, the Save Our Schools people have turned up on critical pedagogy in the age of neoliberalism. I'm afraid the dogs are not great um, adherents to the doctrine the economic doctrine of neoliberalism. Uh, then we go over to Florida. And finally, we've got our great state school. And we've got some very interesting people to read you all this information today. All the young ones are coming in. And of course, Dale is organising everything. So without any more ado, Oliver's going to read our press release 933 and introduce us to the whole uh, very interesting facts and figures of Trevor Cobalt. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. This is press release 933. Public schools go begging for representation at the federal election. Australian citizens, and most particularly public school supporters, are being shortchanged and ignored in the current bread and circuses of federal politics. The Liberal Party is avoiding education as an issue and the Labour Party is skirting around the issue, trying to play safe with the religious interest groups. But Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools on the 13th and 19th of April has come up with extraordinary, extraordinarily damaging figures. The Morrison government is massively overfunding both the Queensland private schools and the New South Wales private schools to the tune of more than a billion dollars, i.e. $2 billion altogether. Victorian private schools will also be overfunded by $730 million from 2022 to 2028. Meanwhile, public schools are set to be underfunded by billions of dollars. Does this mean that with the Morrison government in particular, the futures of our children will be left to the whims of an overfunded, expanding sectarian system, which can discriminate against any child or parent or employee as its doctrine demands while our public schools go begging? Trevor Cobalt's research is damning presented in full. This is his first article, uh, the Morrison government to overfund NSW private schools by nearly $1 billion. 
Trevor Cobold writes, New South Wales private schools are massively overfunded by the Commonwealth government. Estimates based on official figures presented to Senate estimate show that the NSW Catholic education system and nearly 40% of independent schools will be overfunded by $865 million by the Commonwealth government from 2022 to 28. The Catholic system will be overfunded by 366 million and 137 independent schools by 499 million. Just 41 independent schools will be overfunded by 340 million and they account for two thirds of the total overfunding of all NSW independent schools. They include many of the most expensive and exclusive schools in New South Wales. The full list of overfunded New South Wales independent schools is in attachments one of the SOS research paper, which can be downloaded on the Save Our Schools website. St. Augustine's College is the top overfunded school. Its cumulative overfunding for 22 to 2028 will amount to $21 million. The school is currently funded at 173% of its schooling resource standard, SRS, by the Commonwealth government which is over double its entitlement of 80% of its SRS. The New South Wales government is responsible for the other 20% of the SRS target, but it has not divulged its current and future funding estimates for individual private schools. However, on average, it is also overfunding private schools at 23% of their SRS. St. Augustine's College is a highly privileged school Over 50% of its students are from the highest socio-educationally advantaged SEA quartile, and nearly 90% are from the top two quartiles. Only 1% are from the lowest SEA quartile. Northern Beaches Christian School is also funded at more than double its entitlement. It is funded at 169% of its SRS, and the total overfunding from 2022 to 28 will amount to 16.1 million. Just under 60% of its students are from the top SEA quartile and nearly 90% are from the top two. Trinity Grammar is also highly overfunded. It is currently funded at 115% of its SRS by the Commonwealth and will be overfunded by 16.4 million to 2028. Nearly 70% of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 93% are from the top two. Many of Sydney's most exclusive schools will be overfunded by millions. For example, the cumulative overfunding of Newington College will amount to 13.5 million. Three quarters of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 95% are from the top two quartiles. Loreto Kirribilli will be overfunded by $11 million. Over 80% of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 97% are from the top two. St. Aloysius College will be overfunded by 10.1 million, even though 91% of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 99% are from the top two quartiles. Three quarters of students at Mont San Angelo Mercy College are from the top SEA quartile and 95% are from the top two quartiles, yet it will be overfunded by 9.9 million. Five uniting church schools will be overfunded by 26 million, They include several of the most exclusive schools in Sydney, Knox Grammar, MLC School, Pimble Ladies College, and Ravenswood. They charge fees of around $30,000, but 80% of their students are from the top SEA quartile, and 96% or more are from the top two SEA quartiles. It is disgusting taxpayer welfare for the rich.
Many other schools with over top 60% of their students from the top SEA quartile and over 90% from the top two quartiles are overfunded by four to $10 million. These include Central Coast Grammar, Pittwater House, St. Andrew's Cathedral School, St. Catherine's School, and St. Vincent's College. The New South Wales Catholic school system is overfunded at present by the Commonwealth government at 81% of its SRS. The Commonwealth share of, the, of its SRS will increase to 83% next year and then gradually decline to 80% in 2029. This will result in overfunding of about $366 million for 598 schools. The overfunding of private schools is due to end by 2029 as the Commonwealth reduces its funding share to 80% of their SRS. However, there is no guarantee this will occur. Several private school organizations are campaigning against losing their overfunding and indeed want more. Their greed is unrestrained. In effect, it is a campaign against funding for those most in need. In, in its pre-budget submission, Independent Schools Australia called for increased funding to support choice in education. Their demands include more funding for schools to transition to the direct measure of income, DMI, methodology for calculating the financial need of private schools. This is despite receiving $455 million over 10 years from 2019 to 2029 under the Choice and Accountability Slush Fund. $66 million in various forms of transitional assistance to the DMI approach in 2019 and hundreds of millions in JobKeeper payments in 2020. It also wants more funding for regional boarding schools and an increase in capital grants. Not to be outdone, the National Catholic Education Commission also wants additional funding for its schools in regional, rural and remote areas and for regional boarding schools. This is despite its huge windfall of $3.7 billion over 10 years from 2019 to 2020 from the introduction of the DMI to assess the financial need of schools. 727 million in additional funding under the Choice and Accountability Fund and 157 million in transitional assistance to the DMI in 2019. We can expect to hear more of these demands in the federal election campaign. In contrast to the overfunding of private schools, the chronic underfunding of New South Wales public schools is set to continue for the rest of the decade. New South Wales public schools are only funded at 87.4% of their SRS in 2022. They'll be funded at less than 91% of their SRS until 2029 because the Commonwealth New South Wales Bilateral Funding Agreement allows the NSW government to defraud public schools. Formally, the New South Wales government is only required to fund public schools to 75% of their SRS instead of 80% by 2027, with the Commonwealth providing the other 20% by 2023. However, the agreement also allows the New South Wales government to claim expenditure on depreciation and the NSW Education Standards Authority up to 4% of its target share. These expenditures are specifically excluded from the definition of the SRS and so allow the NSW government to reduce its target share to be achieved by 2027 to 71%. Thus, public schools will only ever be funded at 91% of their SRS for at least the next five years and probably later. This skullduggery robs public schools of billions in funding. The cumulative underfunding of public schools from 2022 to 28 is estimated by SOS at around $13 billion. 
we're at a critical point in the future of school funding. The Morrison government is under pressure to provide another special deal for private schools to protect their millions in overfunding. The question is not whether it will deliver to its clients, but how much in the lead up to the federal election. Meanwhile, public schools continue to suffer from massive chronic underfunding. The federal election is an opportunity for the Labor, Greens and independents to address the inequity in school funding. Labor and the Greens must deliver on their promise to ensure that public schools are fully funded at 100% of their SRS. Shadow Minister for Education, Tanya Plibersek, has committed to this goal several times in the last few months, most recently at the New South Wales Teachers Federation Principals Conference. The Commonwealth Government must play a greater role in addressing disadvantage in education. A priority should be to increase the funding loadings for disadvantaged students. Another priority is to revise the Commonwealth State's bilateral funding agreement to ensure that the states, including New South Wales, fulfill their responsibilities in public schools. Now I'm going to throw it to Sorrel, who's going to tell us a little bit about wealthy Queensland private schools. Thanks, Ollie. So wealthy Queensland private schools have been massively overfunded by the Morrison government. Queensland, writes Trevor Cobalt, Queensland private schools are massively overfunded by the Commonwealth Government, Queensland Catholic education system, and about one third of the independent schools will be overfunded by $665 million by the Commonwealth Government from 2022 to 2028. The Catholic system will be overfunded by 384 million and 88 independent schools by 271 million. Just 30 independent schools are overfunded by 199 million. They account for nearly three quarters of the total overfunding of independent schools. They include many of the most expensive and exclusive schools in Queensland. The full list of overfunded independent schools is available um, with this Trevor Cobalt article on the AGE website. The estimates are based on official figures presented to the Senate estimates. Under the current funding arrangements for private schools, the Commonwealth Government is responsible for funding private schools at 80% of their SRS. However, many Queensland private schools are funded at well above 80%, as shown in the uh, table on the article. The Queensland government is responsible for the other 20% of the SRS target, but it has not divulged its current and future funding estimates for individual private schools and systems. On average, it is also overfunding private schools at 21.2% of the SRS. Cannon Hill College is at the top of the overfunded schools list. Its cumulative overfunding by the Commonwealth Government for 2022 to 2028 will amount to 16.2 million. The school is currently funded at 132% of its SRS by the Commonwealth Government instead of the target 80. Cannon Hill College is a highly privileged school. Over three quarters of its students are from the highest socio-educationally advantaged quartile and over 94% are from the top two quartiles. Only 1% are from the lowest SEA quartile. Brisbane Grammar is also highly overfunded. It is currently funded at 133% of its SRS by the Commonwealth and will be overfunded by 12.9 million in 2028. 
nearly 90% of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 94% are from the top two quartiles. Others overfunded wealthy schools included St. Margaret's School, which is currently funded at 133% of its SRS by the Commonwealth, and its cumulative overfunding to 2028 will be 9.2 million. Brisbane Girls Grammar is funded at 120% of its SRS and will be overfunded by 8 million to 2028. Hillbrook School is funded at 106% of its SRS and will be overfunded by 6.1 million. And four Presbyterian and Methodist schools, Brisbane Boys College, Clayfield College, Somerset House and Sunshine Coast Grammar are funded at 101% of their SRS and will be overfunded by an average of 5.7 million each. Matthew Flinders College is funded at 106% of its SRS and will be overfunded by 11.7 million. Around 70% and more of the students in these schools are from the top SEA quartile and 90% are from the top two quartiles. They have virtually no students from the lowest SEA quartile, not surprising given their average fees of around $30,000 a year. The Diocese of Brisbane school system consisting of 10 schools is also heavily overfunded. It will be overfunded by 45.6 million to 2028, an average of 4.6 million per school. Several of its schools are highly privileged. For example, 62% of students at St. Andrew's Anglican College are from the top SEA quartile and 90% from the top two quartiles. Similarly, 61% of students at St. Paul's School are from the top SEA quartile and 89% from the top two quartiles, with only 2% from the bottom quartile. Both schools have only 1% of their students from the bottom SEA quartile. The Queensland Catholic school system is overfunded at present by the Commonwealth government at 83% of its SRS. The Commonwealth share of its SRS will increase to 84% next year and then gradually decline to 80% in 2029. This will result in the overfunding of about 384 million for 310 schools. The overfunding of private schools is due to end by 2029 as the Commonwealth reduces its funding share to 80% of the SRS. However, there is no guarantee this will occur. Several private school organisations are campaigning against losing their overfunding and indeed want more. Their greed is unrestrained. In effect, it is a campaign against funding for those most in need. Well, I think that we're very, uh, very lucky to have somebody like Trevor Cobalt to turn up all of these figures. The overall uh, impression is that uh, the private schools don't seem to have any kind of morality at all. They're just greedy. Uh, they want no one to lose a dollar. In fact, they want as many dollars as they can get out of the public treasury. Uh, and their, their uh, students are mainly, as we can see, from the wealthy backgrounds. What concerns the dogs is that with the demand for choice in education, we are going backwards in time into the 19th century to the denominational system, 
where the public system will be run down as it was in Ireland in the 19th century. And all we will have are all of this myriad of schools uh, that is based on different religious backgrounds with uh, really very little choice for children, only choice for uh, parents who happen to be the right religion. So it really is a very difficult and worrying situation that we now find ourselves in in Australia. And this election is very important. Mr Morrison and his uh, cohorts and his friends in the religious school uh, lobbyists should not be rewarded for their bad behaviour. But we'll have a bit of a break and come back to uh, read about building the unlucky country. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. We hope you're still listening to the dogs because we've got something from the Australian Education Union. They feel much like the dogs do that Mr Morrison should not be rewarded for his bad behaviour in relation to uh, education funding. And Dale's going to read a very interesting article from them, from the AEU News. Morrison, building the unlucky country. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, this article's by Monica Ducks, and she writes, my son's primary school didn't have much in the way of fancy in fancy facilities, but it always struck me as a happy place. It was easy to ignore the fact that there there was never soap in the toilets or that the ancient prep readers were held together by sticky tape because the enthusiasm of the teachers made up for it. At least it did until chronic overcrowding finally started to bite and the school's lack of resources became became a lot harder to laugh off. First, the library was turned into a classroom. Resourceful teachers responded by creating a travelling library that brought the books to the kids, yet it was hard not to mourn the loss of that wonderful space. Shortly afterwards, desks were removed from classrooms as the school embraced an 
open plan learning approach. Again, staff tried to accentuate the positives, but the truth was impossible to avoid. An open plan approach was necessary because there was simply not enough room for every child to be properly seated. The low point arrived when desks were placed in the corridor that connected the prep classrooms. The school had never numbered its rooms, instead giving them fun, child-friendly names. In keeping with this tradition, the corridor was optimistically renamed the Learning Laneway, but soon the parents started to come up with their own names for the overstuffed classrooms, the sardine can and the broom closet. Meanwhile, just down the road, a sparkling new private school was opening, a school that took out expensive newspaper advertisements featuring pictures of smiling children in neatly pressed uniforms. Flyers were left in our letterboxes too, promising educational excellence, smaller class sizes and state-of-the-art facilities. What I witnessed at my son's school isn't unique and was in no way the fault of the staff who did a brilliant job under very challenging circumstances. The blame and the shame belongs entirely to our federal government. As they starve our public education sector of funding, they are funneling obscene sums into the private system. Clearly, this is a government not just tolerating glaring educational inequities, but actively promoting them. As a result, the OECD reports that our nation's school system is now one of the most segregated in the world. Back in 2012, the historic Gonski report revealed that the achievement gap between children from high versus low socioeconomic backgrounds could be the equivalent of three years of schooling. With current funding disparities, that gap between our most privileged and our most disadvantaged, especially Indigenous students, will only widen. Last year, an age investigation revealed that Australia's most prestigious private schools were collectively worth $8.5 billion and they're getting richer. Between 2015 and 2019, these schools accumulated assets at a greater rate than the property market or the stock exchange. So, where did such astonishing wealth come from? Rising school fees, alumni donations, a building boom, surging stock market returns, oh, and taxpayer assistance. That's our money being handed to private institutions that already boast world-class swim Olympic swimming pools, state-of-the-art concert halls, and cafes with on-site baristas. Meanwhile, teachers at my local state primary were squeezing little desks into a corridor so that the five-year-olds would have somewhere to sit while they decipher their crumbling readers. Just last year, the Morrison government handed out a further $1.9 billion to private and Catholic schools in a special deal for capital works. Why settle for one Olympic swimming pool when you can have two? By contrast, our federal government does not spend a single cent on maintenance and infrastructure for Australia's public schools. In its 2022 pre-election budget, the Morrison government has slashed funding for public schools by $559 million, while funding for private schools has increased by $2.6 billion over the forward estimates. 
our government does not even meet the agreed benchmark per student funding, the schooling resource standard, the SRS, which, if allowed to continue on this current trajectory, would leave our public school sector underfunded by an estimated $60 billion by 2029. This neglect is not restricted to the primary and secondary sectors. Indeed, we've seen the Morrison government wage a sustained war on public education at every level. Australia is one of the only countries in the world that not only fails to adequately fund its public education sector, but also diverts huge sums of public money into private and religious schools. At one end, the Morrison government refuses to fund three-year-old kindergarten, despite despite the widely recognised benefits of early years education, not only for our youngest learners, but also to help support women's participation in the workforce. At the other end, we've seen the flagrant denigration of TAFE and the gutting of our universities. You could could be forgiven for thinking that this government fancies an undereducated population and that its approach to education is focused on nurturing no one but the elite few destined to join its ranks. The putrid icing on this inequity cake is that the money we throw at private and independent schools brings no commensurate obligation for them to uphold basic standards of non-discrimination and equity of access, which explains why City Point Christian College in Queensland was able to make homophobic and transphobic statements to its school community earlier this year without any fear of losing government support. Well, I reckon that there's a pretty good cartoonist there at the AEU because I really couldn't pass by without commenting on this cartoon. We have a picture of a private school at the entrance, St Exclusivus of the Overfunded, proud supporter of educational inequity. And we have a parent or two parents with their little boys outside St. Exclusivus with the parents saying, I send him here for the values. I think that says it all. (laughs) Indeed. Since the 1980s, most developed countries have felt the influence of neoliberal ideology with its emphasis on personal responsibility at the expense of the collective good. In many places, this has led to governments giving less support to public institutions. Yet Australia is one of the only countries in the world that not only fails to adequately fund its public education sector, but also diverts huge sums of public money into private and religious schools. Even the class-riven UK does not publicly fund the private sector. If parents want to send their child to an elite institution with Olympic swimming pools, well-manicured lawns and cold brew espresso, so be it. But they must pay for this privilege themselves. How is it that we as a society have come to accept a grossly, such a grossly unjust system? Most people of good conscience will give up a privilege if they can see that it's undeserved and that surrendering it will serve the collective good. But unfortunately, even the best of us become notably partisan when it comes to our children. And this is reflected in the debate around private school funding. It appears we've reached a kind of critical mass in that so many progressively minded 
like-minded people, particularly those with a loud public voice, are now sending their kids to private schools. Having made that decision, they fall silent or become defensive rather than acknowledging that their kids are benefiting from a system that willfully leaves other children behind, a result that will, in the long run, long run leave us all the poorer. There seems no other plausible explanation for this but that growing numbers of Australians who, despite being strong advocates for the value of public education, have lost faith in their national government's willingness to support it. As a result, they are inadvertently propping up the conservative agenda, which has, by exploiting parents' concerns, found the sneakiest possible way of enacting privatisation by stealth. We are a population that loves to extol our egalitarian ideals, intolerating and even embracing our government's neglect of public education. We are abrogating one of the most basic of collective responsibilities, the responsibility to ensure that all children, not just our own, have the chance to realise their full potential, no matter the circumstances of their birth. Isn't it time we demanded a return to a federal leadership that champions this fundamental public good instead of pumping public money into a private sector so it can add a platinum coating to its already gold-plated facilities. Back to you, Jean. Thank you very much, Dale. Uh, that's pretty good, uh, pretty good stuff. I think that the dogs pretty well agree with all of that. And, of course, that's why we still exist to expose the private sector and what it's about because we are for public education and that's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access. It should be public in ownership and control and because it's the only one that's public in accountability, it's the only one that should receive public money. But we'll have a bit of a break and then Bridget and Sorrell I've got a very interesting article. Critical pedagogy in the age of neoliberalism. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. There's kind of a lot of 
a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very, you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I suppose, I hope, and um, we're going to deal now with a little bit of, of curriculum thought. Those of us who've been around for a while are a little bit worried, not about what Mr Tudge is worried about, about our children learning about Aboriginals in Australia, since uh, all for thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years, no, we're a little bit worried about something a bit more recent than that, and that is this belief in selfishness, in competition at all costs and selfishness because those of us who promote public education are interested in the common good because we believe that everybody will do much better, in fact, uh, if the common good is considered first. Believe it or not, it's quite a Christian value. But the private schools, many of whom call themselves Christian, really aren't into this kind of common good idea. Quite the contrary. But on the Save Our Schools website, uh, they have placed a very interesting article, which we're now going to read, or rather Bridget and Sol are going to bring it to us. Critical Pedagogy in the Age of Neoliberalism. Over to you, Bridget. Thanks, Jean, and this is an article from Dane Norris. The experience of the 21st century in education is dominated by the cultural, culture and language of neoliberalism. Since the mainstreaming of neoliberal values in the 1980s, a dominance of hyper-individualism, meritocracy, competition and conservative nationalist values has been normalised in the day-to-day -day practices and culture of the British education systems. This has created a culture in which social problems have been reimagined as individual problems, in which the tyranny of merit paints those who do not achieve where achievement is measured in purely quantitative terms as disposable and wholly to blame for their own failures. Neoliberalism has created, for young people in particular, a culture of ceaseless commodification wherein people are encouraged to believe that self-interest is their only responsibility and that what really matters is symbolic capital attainable through consumption. This, Adorno and Horkheimer famously called the culture industry, 
that is the cultivation of psychosocial needs over politicized forms of thinking, which are only attainable through capitalism. Pedagogically, we see this culture emerge through banking styles of teaching and learning in which retention of data and skills for employment becomes education's raison d'etre. In England, marketization policies encourage students to conceptualize themselves in competition with each other in schools which in turn are in competition with other schools for student intake and by proxy resources. This notes Gyro in is the culture of businesses which reduces education to a regressive form of rationality where a focus on quantifiable skills replaces a focus on critical thinking. Saltman further considers the impact on education of the dominant neoliberal fiscal policies of monetarism, privatization and austerity, concluding that austerity education in England is not only about a turn to repressive control of youth in the interests of amassing profit, it is also about the righteous project of capturing public space, such as schools to actively produce politically illiterate, socially uncritical and unself-critical subject positions for youth to occupy. Education for students and teachers alike thereby becomes a process of depoliticization. And over to Sorrel. Thanks, Bridget. As the seminal work of Fryer argues, this is not to say that teachers' view of reality should be pushed onto students. Rather, that lived realities should be problematized and challenged at the critical level. Here, therefore, I share Giro's view that education is central to politics. Through the prescription to the remembering of abstract facts for assessment, the true purpose of education is hidden with contemporary ideologies legitimized and thereby reproduced. As a result, education could be conceptualized as a space wherein the fight for the future of society, for the ideologies, narratives, and political structures that will govern our children and our children's children is taking place. So in asking what kind of future we want for our children, we cannot help but ask about what kind of pedagogies we are constructing today. In doing so, we are, of course, raising the fundamental question of what is our education for? Do we maintain our current ped pedagogical thinking, which foregrounds mnemonics as a method for retaining more information for regurgitation? If so, we accept that education is inevitably shaped by the capitalist forces it serves, where critical thinking is replaced with skills and training becomes weapons to be employed through the meritocratic and atomized competition in a form of social Darwinism. Despite the dominant rhetoric of a focus on curriculum and content, this banking style of pedagogy necessarily becomes prevalent in any system where standardized testing and quantifiable data remain the modus operandi. Or can we construct alternatives? Spaces in which communities still matter and students are given language to articulate their frustrations in relation to the structures and political choice. Teaching sociology gives me the opportunity to do just that, and it never ceases to amaze me how politically astute and imaginative students can be when offered time and a critical lens through which to consider the politics and pedagogies of today. Far from any notion of political neutrality, 
education is the cultural and ideological battleground on which our children's futures will be decided. It is a battle I fear we are losing, but I, for one, will go down swinging. What a fantastic article there. Uh, back to you, Jean. Yes, I'm so glad you all enjoyed that article. Um, I think it is time that we ask the question, what is our education for? And what kind of world are we going to have our children grow up in? I think a lot of people who've had it good, particularly the baby boomers, are starting to wonder just what kind of a world their grandchildren are going to inherit from them. Uh, that, of course, is the, um, the group that aren't completely selfish or self-centred. But we'll have a little bit of a break. And then we've got an even more interesting um, news from America. Unfortunately, Jeff is still on his way back from his Easter holiday, but Bridget is going to help us on this one. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words, it is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long don't necessarily start off with a Positive relationships with each other, with teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online.
3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, and it's time for our American news. And this is very strange news. I didn't know that maths textbooks could have anything to do with prohibited topics. Let's hear about what's going on in Florida. Over to you, Bridget. Thanks, Jane. And this is an article by Oliver Laughlin. Um, Florida's Education Department has rejected 54 mathematics textbooks from next year's school curriculum, citing alleged references to critical race theory among a range of reasoning for some of the rejections officials announced. The department said in a news release Friday that some of the books had been rejected for failure to comply with the state's content standards, benchmarks for excellent student thinking, also known as BEST, but that 21% of the books were disallowed because they incorporated prohibited topics of unsolicited strategies, including CRT, or critical race theory. Department officials disapproved of an additional 11 books because they do not properly align to best standards and incorporate prohibited topics or unsolicited strategies, including CRT. Critical race theory is an academic practice that examines the ways in which racism operates in US laws and society. The release does not list the titles of the books or provide any extracts to offer reasons why the books were removed. The announcement follows a series of hardline measures by Republicans in the state to alter teaching in schools as conservatives thrust the issue of critical race theory into the country's ongoing political culture wars. In June of last year, the Florida Board of Education ruled to ban the teaching of critical race theories in public schools. That included the teaching of the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning series, The 1619 Project, which re-examines American history in the context of slavery and its consequences. In a statement, Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, welcomed the Education Department's announcement and accused some textbook publishers of indoctrinating children with concepts like race essentialism, especially, bizarrely, for elementary school students. Florida Democrats rebuked the announcement. Democratic State Representatives Carlos G. Smith argued on Twitter with DeSantis had turned our classrooms into political battlefields, and this is just the beginning. Swaths of Republican-controlled states in the U.S. have passed measures seeking to ban the teaching of critical race theory, which will probably be a prominent conservative talking point in this year's midterm elections. Many of those bills and orders are vaguely worded, leading to fears of censorship in school and college campuses across the country. Um, Back to you, Jane. Well, isn't that interesting? Scary. It is scary, yes. Um, and I think DeSantis is a possible replacement for Trump, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, our worry, of course, here in Australia is that we often follow on from um, the United States. And if Mr Morrison is uh, rewarded for his bad behaviour and incompetence as a leader of this country, then one wonders what his Minister for Education, who it will be, first of all, because I think he's on the back bench at the moment, but still in Cabinet. And there's a, a another man called Roberts, I think, who, who oh. says very strange things about bad teachers. Well, um, one just wonders uh, what's going to happen to our children in their classrooms uh, if we start imitating America. But... Um, That's enough of all the negative stuff for the moment. Let's get positive. Let's go to our great state store. 
Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Hazelwood North Primary. Hazelwood North Primary is located in a pleasant rural environment, approximately five kilometres from Morwell and 10 kilometres from Traralgon in the Latrobe Valley. The school is part of the Churchill Cluster of Schools and Latrobe Valley area. The majority of students live in Hazelwood North, Students also travel to the school from Morwell, Churchill and Traralgon. The main aim of their strategic plan is to improve student performance in both English and maths, but also to develop students to be successful in the 21st century by developing the competencies required to achieve this. The school welcomes parental participation in classroom, specialist and extracurricular activities. Uh, they're fortunate enough to have support supportive and hardworking school council and parents club. They are very proud of their committed teachers and support staff, their strongly supportive parent community, their students, their classrooms, specialists and programs for students with disabilities and their range of extracurricular activities that they provide. So the My School website stats are as follows. The school has 156 students and the ICSIA value of the school is 933, which is well below the average of 1,000. So we've got uh, the lower end of the socioeconomic uh, scale student parents uh, in this area. The student representative, the students are representative of the, of the Latrobe community, however. This is a poor community with a tertiary education institution nearby and power stations about to close, offering parents an uncertain future. There are still some farms in the hills nearby. 5% uh, have parents from the upper, 25% of income, 17 percent of students have their parents in the second highest quartile, 35 percent are from the third quartile and 40 percent are from the poorest quartile of SES quartile in the community. Uh, Two percent of the students speak a language other than English at home and two percent are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of disadvantaged students with dedicated principals and teachers. Now it costs the taxpayer $12,626, which is near the Gonski Resource Standard, to edu educate a child at this school. The school receives only $369,642 from the federal government and $1.4 million from the state government. $45,000 comes from fees and $32,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only 56000 All this public and private money is money spent well because the NAPLAN results of these disadvantaged students are just fine. So congratulations to Hazelwood North Primary School. You are our great state school of the week. Jean? Yes, a lovely little school out there in the countryside uh, that caters for uh, children from 
the surrounding uh, towns in the Latrobe Valley. But um, we've come to the end of our program. We thank you for listening to us. And I'd like to thank Dale and Sol and Bridget and also Oliver for putting this to air today. If you want to find out more about the dogs, then go to our website at www.adogs.info. But from all of us today, it's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.